said I miss you. I ripped it up and flipped with the tissue. Try to forget you. I ain't got nothing against you. We human, we all got issues. But I'm tired of being tired of being tired. That part of me that died. I see it in. <clears throat> I suppose I let that go a little further than I was supposed to. First thing I've noticed, one, I mean, I'm. I'm trying to put my laptop on do not disturb so I don't constantly get these messages. I know that's been sort of a reoccurring theme throughout the last couple of episodes and, uh, oh, notify me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to take off all the notify me stuff. Hopefully that works. I have no idea if that actually worked, but nonetheless, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special episode today. Uh, I don't want to say the one that I'm most looking forward to, uh, but it is perhaps the one I am most looking forward to, and that's for a few reasons, actually. And I, I don't think this individual ha knows this, but I actually mentioned him a few podcasts ago and said I would love if you know the opportunity to, to get him on here, and we were able to manifest that, and luckily we were able to do that. Uh, this is also a cool podcast. I've, as you guys know, I've been saying that I've been recording these visually. Uh, we have quite the setup here. Uh, we are actually in this individual's home, his first investment property. More importantly, the first step to financial freedom for a certain individual. And uh, he goes by the name of Al Wang. And yeah, wow. Well, I mean, Al, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. It's exciting. Yeah, so basically, I thought it'd be a really cool episode, and I know I was super excited too. Uh, so this was both uh, perhaps a life-changing relationship for the two of us. I mean, uh, we know from my perspective, this was the first house that I sold. And from Al's perspective, this was the first property that he acquired. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of moving parts to this. And, you know, we thought it would be cool to, you know, now that everything is over in terms of having done closed on the deal, uh, to sort of reflect and, and take you guys through the journey and, you know, what it took to get here, why we got here in the first place and the next steps moving forward from here. Uh, so I guess, yeah, why don't, why don't you just tell the people a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into real estate to begin with? Yeah, sure. So, everyone, uh, my name is Ho. Uh, I've, I've lived in Boston for a few years. I think this is the seventh or eighth year I went to uh, I went to college here in Boston and uh, also worked here for three years uh, at an e-commerce company. And, uh, and I think in terms of why I wanted to get into real estate is really just starting from the, uh, like a personal finance perspective, what would be something that I would be really interested in pursuing that I would be having uh, high returns. And uh, I looked around at a few things, actually, um, prior to hitting on the real estate jackpot. Um, like, yeah, like I was, for quite a bit, I, like I was actually involved in some, uh, like, multi-level marketing stuff. I was like, hey, how does this work? You know, just trying to get... Big Just trying to get... <laughs> I know. Just trying to get an understanding of that and realize, okay, okay, that was interesting. Now, what what else, right? And uh, uh, got into some kind of a, uh, affiliate marketing. Also, you know, just testing some waters. Didn't 
feel like I like that that much, uh, you know, and like Bitcoin, uh, stock market, but uh, and finally real estate, and which I realized, okay, this actually makes a lot of sense to me. The numbers make sense, and uh, I don't know, it just hits me where I'm really interested in because, like, I used to play my favorite game when I was young was. Uh, Monopoly. There was a uh, there was a Chinese version of that. That's where I'm from, China. Um, but I was like, oh, buying houses and just making money off of that. It feels like fun. Yeah. And, uh, and that's kind of where I really got started to learn about real estate. Wow. Yeah. No. I mean, it's so a few things come to mind. One, it's funny that you mentioned the multi-level marketing because just have you heard of ACM? Uh, no, I had not. So they're like a parent scheme for electric service, like the utilities and services. And uh, I was on a Zoom call yesterday. Like this dude was like, "Oh, dude, uh, business opportunity. Like, hop on the Zoom." And I already knew it was going to be a waste of time, but I was like, "All right, like, I'll see what this guy has to say." And then, like within the first like thirty seconds, he was like, "Here at ACM, like you build your own network, and like you can make residual income with these utilities." And like within the first thirty seconds, like I straight just hung up. Not again. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like all of the people that are sort of uh, looking to to create this this generational wealth per se have, have fallen into the uh, at least looked into the, the multi level market. Yeah, I feel like as soon as you search like how do I be rich like something like that in Google, right? <laughs> I feel like anyone of us would search that at some point in life and, and would definitely be. One of these avenues, yeah, and it's all about choosing which one. And I'm curious to hear, do you remember at, at what point in particular, I guess like your first exposure to real estate? Like I know for me, I was at my friend uh, Brooks's apartment in the summer a year or two ago, and I was on the phone with my friend Will, and he was like, hey dude, like you should look into to being an agent and looking into some investments. And that was like a very clear moment, like the first time it started hitting. Do you remember that for you? Um. So I think it really, it's kind of more from my upbringing, really, the, the first kind of real exposure. Um, so I, uh, I was raised in Beijing, China, uh, for the first kind of 14 years of my life. And uh, I just remember moving into a new house uh, that my family moved into. And then a few years later, they were like, oh my God, why didn't we purchase the one that's right, up, right next door to us? Uh, right next door to us, and because our property had 10 exits, so does the other one, and we could have afforded it. And that's really the first time that I heard about you know these type of returns in real estate. And you know my parents been just talking about it for years, um, but they they weren't really real estate investors. They were just um, they bumped into these type of uh, opportunities uh, at that time. They uh, like I think. I think 10 years ago, uh, the Chinese real estate market just crazy booming and uh, a, a lot of people made their generational wealth uh, unconsciously, like they unintentionally, they didn't really um, meant to do real estate, market, real estate, they just purchased a home as their primary residence and all of a sudden their net worth doubled. And for those who luckily brought two or three, their wealth really doubled. So right. uh, that's kind of really my very first exposure. Okay, yeah, that's really awesome. And, you know, I think a big thing that both you and I realized was how well positioned you were 
uh, to sort of get started at an early age. And you're, is it 23 years old, is that right? 25. 25. So most people at this age aren't even thinking about this yet. And obviously, you know, we were, or you in particular, were able to, to get ahead of the curve. I'm curious, what's, what's your perspective on, uh, you know, you're a lot more in the, the software engineer scene than I am. You're working with these, these people every day, and that is your profession. Is this uh, a common mentality? Is, is this something that software engineers are starting to think about? Like, oh, wow, I should get into real estate investing? Or is it something that you almost felt isolated in, where it's like, why aren't all of my colleagues also getting into this? You know, yeah, I feel like it's more the latter. Like, yeah. not a ton of uh, coworkers that I work with really talk about this kind of stuff. And even when I mentioned, like, hey, I'm buying uh, a house and, you know, renting half of it and stuff, they're like, oh, okay, great. But then, like, they don't really, like, got triggered by the conversation and want to discuss more. I feel like that's the, well, well, maybe that's one thing. The other is, you know, during COVID, we're all work from home. We don't really get to have these conversations. Uh, but I think, just when you really are working in a W2 job, like anything, um, it's kind of your main mentality while you're working is just to get, you know, do your work, produce value, and uh, move on, like, and move on with your personal life. Like, there isn't, like, I think one thing that really, uh, what shocked me was that once you really start working in a company, even if you're just like two or three years out, all of a sudden you just have a ton less conversations about entrepreneurship and mm -hmm. you know, like investment, like financial freedom, like the concept of financial freedom is not often discussed in our day-to-day -day work environment. Operations, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, um, and I think you know, for people like us who really have that aspiration, it's you, like I needed to get out of that bubble like intentionally so that I don't really lose that and, you know, be a part of this bigger bubble that prevents me from thinking these type of topics. Right. And yeah, there's, there's a few things that come to mind. You know, one, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, obviously for me, I sort of decided to go all in. On the software engineers. I was like, this is, it works. These are people that can actually greatly benefit from it. And, and so I was talking to my buddy Franklin. Uh, Franklin, if you're listening to this, hello. Uh, and so I was, I was just thinking, I was like, yeah, man, like where, where are, where is the attention of these software engineers? Like where are they hanging out, whether it's physically or virtually, digitally? And he's like, yeah, man, like they're busy coding. <laughs> so I just thought it was, it was funny because it, it is true. I think it, it's sort of cognizant of, of this larger image. Uh, I, I forget what it's called. Like, I don't know if it's called the Golden Rabbit or what it is. But what, what a lot of, especially with software engineers, they tend to take care of their employees so well with their salaries that it's sort of hard to, to get out of that state uh, when you're being compensated so well to think like, okay, I'm going to start doing these more uh, entrepreneurially involved activities. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point is the, uh, the compensation side of things. Uh, when I think when I, I wouldn't want to speak with, you know, on behalf of most software engineers, but uh, a typical kind of software engineer lens is 
what I perceive is that uh, their career their career path goes like this. There are I think two two sides of it. One, you can you know stay in a pretty you know big and uh, well compensated uh, with you know great benefit uh, tech company and just stay there for the next five to ten years and have all your stocks vested and keep right. your stocks vesting and um, you know keep going up the ladder and you know as you're coding you tend to you know improve on your scope of work and your understanding of software so naturally you can climb up that ladder and be senior software engineer staff engineer you know so on and so forth or become a you know software engineer manager and so on uh, and the other side of uh, what software engineers do, I think, uh, career, career pathwise is they're constantly switching companies, you know, uh, every few years, like, because that's really the fastest way for them to have compensation increase. Staying in one company doesn't really give you a ton of uh, compensation increase as you're switching companies. Like, mm -hmm. for example, um, a lot of my coworkers that I've noticed, you know, they're making, let's say, 150K, uh, 112k, sorry, 120k a year, uh, and then as they are switching to a new tech company, uh, their new total compensation would be like uh, 200k or something like that, and that's faster than you know you're going in, the, you're going at it in a single company. So I think those are the two really big paths. And one one misconception that I personally had is that I would think that a lot of software engineers as they uh, get to know this, how things work, they would, you know, have their own startups or do a lot of freelance work that would, you know, just have them towards the financial freedom goal. But right. that's really not what I see. Maybe it's because I've only started out in the software engineer, um, like, field for two years. Maybe, you know, as you're going further, you have that drive, but that's not what I seeing as of now. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think initially when I had pursued my computer engineering degree, I, I sort of saw the compensation as like a means to an end. We're like, oh, like I can, you know, from the first couple of years, like 200K off the bat, awesome. You know, but I didn't necessarily have that mindset of like just sticking in the software world for, for a long period of time. And I, I would imagine the reason it's easier to to switch companies and get higher pay, my intuition tells me, well, one, these software companies can afford to do so, but also because there's such, uh, especially in this market, uh, these companies value these software engineers so much that they're willing to offer the extra compensation to snipe this talent from different companies. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it really depends on the uh, the industries, the kind of the, the market pay based on different industries, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know software engineer is really one of the top fields. Uh, and I you know uh, as I was in college, I actually did did not know about that. I was like, hey, finance and econ is gonna definitely be making the most money. We're spending money, uh, but that's uh, actually not the case you know in this era. Uh, but yeah, I think it's really like you said, it's market demands and that creates the level of compensation. Right, yeah, no, I think I think that's a really good point. And let's talk about, all right, so let's talk about this deal specifically. All right. Oh, brother, oh man, I mean, <laughs> whoo! 
we'll, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll certainly get in, into all the details, but I guess a uh, higher level overview, let's, uh, yeah, let's talk about how, how we got in contact and then like sort of how, how that relationship started developing. Yeah, so uh, I think back in uh, June or July 2020, uh, I started wanting to uh, like purchase my first home and I was like, oh, what's the best way to do it? Uh, I learned a thing called house hacking and a lot of that house hacking topics are from bigger pockets and that's how I got exposure to that. Uh, started to listen every single bigger pockets uh, like podcast and uh, decided that oh maybe I won't, I should you know at least let people around me know uh, that I intend to purchase my first home. So uh, I just posted super brief intro on my like profile with nothing else, just said something along the lines that are, uh, hey, I'm a first uh, time home buyer. Uh, I'm approved for an FHA loan, 700K to a million, and looking forward uh, to work with a uh, experienced real estate agent to get me through the journey. And that was it. And uh, you and I got through contact because I think, well, you saw, well, definitely saw that. Uh, you sent me uh, a personal request, like, hey, like, you know, introduce yourself. Uh, and at that point, I was actually also uh, speaking with uh, a few agents that were pretty active on their pockets. Uh, had a few conversations with them. Um, yeah, I actually didn't reply to your message right away. I think I waited for uh, two weeks or something when you <laughs> sent me a follow-up message. Um, because I think when, when I first saw your message, I was like, hey, someone emailed, well, someone messaged me, that's good. Uh, and checked out your LinkedIn profile, realized that you were a college student. I'm like, why would I want to work with a college student who's definitely cannot be, you know, perceived as super experienced real estate agent, uh, naturally. And uh, until you send me a third time follow-up message, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this guy's got something and I, I gotta give this guy a shot. And, uh, you know, got, got in contact with you and uh, you turned out to be the most responsive person. Like we talked about initially about my strategies, and uh, I think a few hours later, you sent me a few of the uh, uh, potential properties with kind of your idea of how that uh, number is going to work. I was like, oh, maybe I should, you know, get in contact with you more and you know try to scope out a property uh, together. Um, that's really how that rule started. Yeah, no, it's it's so funny, man. How how that sort of developed over time yeah. because I remember, dude, it was the weirdest feeling, man. Like I was, I was scrolling through bigger pockets and this is from my perspective, obviously. And, and I saw the profile and then I saw you on, dude. Okay. Also I hit this man up one on bigger pockets, but I'm pretty sure I added him on Facebook, added him on LinkedIn. Like I was on all the socials trying to get in contact with him because I had like the deepest, I don't know what it was, uh, but I just had like a really deep feeling within me that like, this is like a very, a very mutual, or could be a very mutually beneficial relationship for the two of us. And you know, I don't, something within me told me that, and I was like, all right, like I don't care how many times I have to message this dude, like he doesn't know it yet, but like this is, you know, this is gonna be awesome. It's gonna work, and, and it did take some time. And uh, I mean, yeah. So I, I guess from there, we we finally started checking out some properties. And it was it was a bit of a process even finding which property, right? We checked out a few different neighborhoods. Uh, we got we put a few different or maybe 
So we, we almost put an offer in on the, the property in Quincy, the three family. Do you remember why we ended up not putting in an offer on that place? No, we actually ended up putting in uh, one offer down. Uh, it was, the, so the price was listed, I think, um, 879K and we put in 860. Uh, mm. And then, but there was another party who was also uh, putting the offer and they waived the inspection contingency. And, which is why that our, our offer didn't end up going through. Um, but yeah, we, we did put in an offer on that. Dude, that's right. Okay, no, that, you're completely right. And I remember that was sort of a bummer. You know, that, that was definitely a bummer. It was, it was a nice property. It was very close to the water in Quincy, but uh, I think that, that's a, a general lesson for, for both of us. Like, it's, it's easy to be bummed out by that, but when it comes down to waiving the inspection contingency, um, you know, that's, I don't think that's a situation that either of us wanted to be in, especially for your first property, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we have to balance the opportunity with the risk. And so, I mean, generally, were, are, you, are you happy with that decision that, you know, we didn't do something like that to waive the inspection contingency? Yes, well, there are actually a couple of, few, couple of things that I was glad that that deal did not go through. <laughs> uh, but one thing was that, you know, the inspection contingency, uh, and two is really the uh, constraints uh, with regard to the FHA loan. Uh, so the FHA loan, there is some uh, debt-to-income ratio uh, limits uh, and also the rate of return on the property itself that have to go through and uh, based on how the rent is coming through for that property, the highest that we could have offered was, I remember, uh, like, 815 mm -hmm. uh, with the FHA loan and we, with the self-sufficiency test. With the self-sufficiency test, yeah. And uh, to put the offer down 860, uh, we actually needed pretty much getting all of my cash out as down payment and mm -hmm. uh, just uh, cash on cash return wise, it didn't make a ton of sense. Um, so I'm glad that that did not go through. Uh, I think those were the two biggest things. Right. Yeah. No. And. That's, that's often the case with these deals is there's a lot of uh, blessings in disguise that, that you don't initially see. And I know uh, for this property, this, this property was interesting uh, to say the least. And this one, yeah, the one that we're currently in right now in this, in this humble abode. And it's so, it's so cool, I think, just like we're, dude, that's so crazy, man. Like we literally, I mean, a few months back at this point, uh, we had essentially no idea about this property. We walked in for the first time. We had the open house, and now we're like sitting in this empty room recording a podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's that. I mean, that's that's just crazy. And uh, so, and this was interesting because this was a, pro a property that was initially under contract. Uh, the deal didn't go through because they didn't attain financing, or as far as we know, they didn't attain financing. Uh, so it came back on market and Al and I decided, okay, let's check it out. It was listed for 700. Right. It was listed for 700 and as far as, as far as we could tell, all the information that we did know, it seemed like a, a wonderful opportunity. And I think, I don't know if it was later that day or the next day, but I remember- It was that day. It was later that day. It was, it was later that day. It was later that day, and I want to say, do you remember exactly what day? I think it was a Thursday or a Friday. It was the, oh, I think the 
Saturday. It was Saturday. Okay, because because there's gonna be an open house Sunday. Sunday. Tomorrow. Okay, okay, that's what it was. Yes. So there was gonna be an open house Sunday, but we were able to submit the offer. We put in a strong offer. Right here we put it in for seven twenty-five. Seven twenty-five, and within an hour, we got a call from the listing agent, and she says, "Hey, we're canceling the open house tomorrow, and we're accepting your offer." Yeah, and we actually, I remember that we asked them, like, hey, like, if we're submitting a strong offer in tonight, are you willing to just accept the offer and cancel the open house on Saturday? They were like, okay, yeah, I mean, if there's a strong offer, um, we're willing to do that. Right, and do you remember, uh, well, I guess there's, there's two fun moments in particular, but... Okay, I'll, I'll bring up this one first. I remember when, uh, just when we had gotten the offer accepted, one, it's sort of funny to see how, uh, like, innocent we were at the time, like, not knowing that, like, that was really just the first few steps of everything to come. But I remember, like, we hopped on a FaceTime and just started screaming, like, <laughs> just, like, dancing up and down. I think uh, you went to your fridge and started eating a popsicle. <laughs> <laughs> just do you remember that? And I was, I was likewise eating some ice cream. Yes, I did. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think the reason that you know we're so ecstatic at the time was that we did actually check out quite a few properties, uh, and then you know having the having the one in Quincy rejected, like you know we just know that we have to keep going, and uh, that was really. I think we we're also excited because the fact that. Like on that day of open house, we saw a couple of other groups going in and checking the place out. We knew that this was a hot deal, and uh, and we wanted to grab it. And I think we saw three open houses on on that day. And then we, you know, ran some numbers later and realized, okay, this is actually the the best one, and we should make an offer ASAP. And we know that we maybe can have a competitive edge by submitting the offer just right there and then. Um, and we got the acceptance, so which means that we also eliminated some potential competitions on Sunday as well, and that was also one of the reasons that we were happy about it. Right, yeah, and, and do you remember uh, sort of how, how that initial negotiation had went down? Uh, you mean from, I mean there were so many rounds of negotiations. I know, that, that's what talking about. Um, you mean how we got the 725 down to well, well, I guess how because at first we were considering putting in an offer for seven thirty-five. No, yes, that's right. Actually, uh, oh, you know what? The funny thing is that the listing agent, for some reason, just told us all the information about what we needed to know at that point. I remember the exact conversation goes like this: like, uh, the listing agent was complaining, like, "Hey, this was back on market because the previous the previous uh, buyer." Uh, had a very strong offer, but then they asked for some very unreasonable asks to uh, lower the price, and they told us exactly what those offers were. They're like, "Hey, there was one that was uh, seven uh, forty-five, but they asked to lower the uh, purchase price to uh, by like fifty k." And we're like, oh, "Okay, that's not reasonable," but then we realized why that could be. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then, yeah, and then she was like, oh, there's also a 735, 725, or something like that along the line. And then we knew, like, hey, this, the, the seller was already going through that one first round of uh, mess where, you know, getting one offer 
um, accept, accepting one offer and then just letting that one offer go and have to realize it back on market, or like kind of maybe we can put in a bit less uh, that would still make it work. Um, and we're like, and I, at that point, I was being a little bit more aggressive, like, hey, 735, let's do it. <laughs> um, and yeah, and what I really appreciate you doing was like, hey, you know what? How about we try 725? And if they accept it, great. If you don't, you know, we can just fall in up with a 735 offer uh, that have a very high likelihood of being accepted. And I was like, hey, you know what? That's great. Let's do it. And that's kind of how we ended up the very first round of negotiations with 725. Right. Yeah. So we, oh boy. So we went through that. The offer got accepted. And, you know, so a, a key uh, point of contention, or I guess uh, what sort of made this deal a bit trickier was the fact that there were solar panels uh, already associated and connected to the property. Now, you know, we don't have to get into who was right, who was wrong, what was said, or a lack of what was said. We're not gonna point any fingers, but one way or another, we were under the impression that the solar panels were already paid for. And we assumed generally that they were paid off and that that was included in the price of the house. And just quickly here, so on uh, Anchor, they have these like 30 minute, now this will be part two of the podcast. Um, and so anyways, with this property, we, so we were under the assumption that it came with the house. It turns out, I think it was just prior to PNS, we had figured out, in fact, that this solar panel had been a loan. It wasn't paid off at all. And the cost of the solar panel was give or take $47,000. We knew that there was a loan associated with it. And not only was there just a loan to be associated that would be passed on to Al, uh, but of the $47,000, a grand total of $24 had been paid on the loan. So essentially we suddenly realized, okay, uh, perhaps this is why the previous buyer perhaps wanted to negotiate a different price, being that, at least from our perspective, maybe we missed something, maybe it was an oversight, uh, maybe I'm being generous by saying that. <laughs> okay, okay, no, I'll, I'll stop, I'll stop. But uh, regardless of the fact, suddenly, now we're in this predicament where Al had to take on this $47,000 loan that we weren't necessarily cognizant of. Um, so yeah, I guess a few things on that, like what were your thoughts sort of, you know, once we had came to that realization and uh, I guess we can just then talk about how we went about solving that problem. Yeah, so I think I remember uh, my very first reaction and also kind of, kind of continuously, I was trying to just be really logical about this. I'm like, hey, I, well, I think I wasn't really, you know, being offended by this uh, in the first place. I was just trying to look at numbers. I'm like, okay, hey, cool. With this new information, now what is the number we're looking at, right? Instead of 725, we're actually putting down 725 plus that 47K, and that is 
now we're looking at almost like 800k <laughs> of a property, um, uh, and that is definitely not a deal that we want to make. And two, we know nothing about solar law and how that works, and we need to kind of look into that. Uh, and that, that's kind of where we really like, you know, trying to find out everything we can about this deal. And um, I think there were, yeah, there were many times that, you know, that this was uh, actually a hurdle for us because um, a lot of the informations we needed, we were the one that were proactively trying to get and investigate instead of, you know, being presented with the information that we need from the other side. And that was right. really the biggest challenge of all. Um, and I remember, <laughs> one, one thing that's really funny to me is that even until this date, right, we've closed the house, like, you're still, you're still the only one who's authorized to look at the loan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. and yeah, so to, to whoever's listening, like, the seller needs to authorize a third party to look at the loan information, and only also was granted with that permission, and I asked them a couple of times to bring me that information, but that was never done. So there were a lot of the hurdles that we needed to jump through on our end to get all the information we needed to reevaluate the deal. Right, yeah, and I mean, so that that was definitely a big curveball, but to Al's point, and I mean, I, I can't speak highly enough about Al's uh, execution and persistence in, in this deal. I mean, at that point, probably 95% of people would have been like, this is too much for me. I'm drowning in, in all this chaos. I'm out. But I also took a step back and uh, and there were a few times, right? I think both of us, uh, obviously not frustrated at each other, but frustrated at the general situation where like, we would have this conversation and I'd be like, yeah, man, you know, I, I don't know. And, and you know, your side, you're just like, yeah, man, I don't know, I have to think about this. But within either a couple hours or the next day, we, we always like came back together and we were like, all right, man, like, we've been thinking about this and you know, this is a different way that, that we can make it work. Um, and I think from your perspective, if, if you sort of didn't have that approach of, of continuously reflecting and thinking about things logically, I don't think there's any chance we could have made this happen. Well, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> yeah, I think, like the biggest thing I think from, uh, you know, I think me versus uh, maybe a more kind of generic, you know, first time home buyer is that the perspective that you're taking is that you're, that I really should be treating this as a business. And um, there's always going to be hurdles expected in the business. And uh, if we know first going in that this is a good deal, and we know also uh, that we kind of have an edge over the, Seller at that point because mm -hmm. there were a lot of things that we could have leveraged to uh, negotiate the price. So why don't we do that and try to do this? Because I mean, looking at all the other uh, deals around the Greater Boston area, we know that there first aren't a lot of uh, multifamily deals, and two, prices are just so high that you know a, a lot of numbers don't make sense. And if you find one that you can see potential working and you also like the spot. So you really should try to make it happen. Uh, but yeah, definitely, like you said, there were points that uh, we're trying to give up. Even 
I think one week before the closing, I was literally talking, like I was asking my lender, asking my attorney, be like, hey, what is the cost of me backing up? How much do I need to pay? <laughs> no, I asked that. <laughs> I was like, okay, so 750 of uh, inspection fee that, you know, uh, that I already paid for. Uh, okay, 750 appraisal fee, 750 uh, like attorney fee. All right, 2,000, 3,000 bucks that I'm giving up. Fine, if the deal go, doesn't go through. Like, I already prepared myself for that. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad that at the end that it actually worked out. Yeah, no, so I guess, you know, in terms of speaking then how, how we finally got it to work out. So, like we said, we initially the offer was accepted for 725. There, there were a few different changes in terms of agreeing to this purchase price and uh, doing a credit, a credit back to Al, back at uh, closing credits or in the form of credits. Uh, but I, when, when it was all said and done, we got it accepted for 705. At the very end, but the second round was different. Right, there were a few. So do you want to, well, I guess it's, it's up to you. We could go through each of the rounds, or we could we could just talk about like when it was all said and done. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was super quick. So, well, the second round of negotiation was that uh, we made it to uh, 700. Right. And uh, the seller is paying $5,000 of closing cost. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the last round negotiation, which is <laughs> right before closing, where we changed it again. Um, uh, which, which was came out to be uh, 705 and the seller uh, doesn't need to pay the closing costs. Yes, and, and in lieu of that, so then the whole reason for that entire negotiation came down to the solar loan where basically uh, in order to transfer this loan to Al, uh, the seller had to pay $14,000 uh, as the incentive payment in order to initiate the transfer of the loan, which at the end of the day, essentially takes that $47,000 loan down to a $33,000 loan. Uh, so in lieu of that, uh, we decided to scratch the, the credit back and increase Al's purchase price to, to the 705, which is a net that Al is quote-unquote losing of 10000 but then you take the fourteen thousand payment into account. Uh, there's then that four thousand dollar net, which essentially we just said, "Hey, look, you know, we're closing for you guys and making this easy as possible. Like, come, like, give us something, you know, like, give, give us something." And finally, they said, "Yeah, all right, let's do it." And yeah, that's how that's how we were able to to pull that off. Yeah, I mean, there were just so many little more things that we could talk about about the deal, but uh, that's really the, the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah I think that, that describes it pretty well. And uh, I would imagine like people are listening going, like, to this right now, like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm so lost. Like, and, and it is, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, to a certain degree, it's, it is a process. There's a lot of sort of different things that are involved. but. At the end of the day, from both of our perspectives, it's about the numbers. Correct. Yeah. And when you talk about you know why the process of difficult is, uh, a clean deal would be that you know the seller uh, work with the lender to fund the money, and uh, then pretty much 
you know, at closing, that money just goes to the buyer, and that's that's it. Uh -huh. uh, but when you when there's an outstanding loan involved, you need to get every party to agree. Basically, like I have to let my lender, you know, know about this loan. Like with this loan, would I still be able to get the FHA loan? That's one. And two is that I need to ask the solar loan company, be like, am I qualified to get this loan? And um, Every party needs to agree to this deal, and that's really the back and forth that had happened. Once you add on to another party, the deal just got difficult mm -hmm. all of a sudden, real quick. Right, yeah, no, that's that's such a good point. I guess for the people, so to, to, I think it would be helpful to give them context in terms of what, what the credit back at closing would have meant for you. And if I'm not mistaken, closing costs were somewhere, like give or take $10,000, is that right? Correct. Okay, so, and, and as we mentioned, we ended up not getting the closing back at credit, but if Al were to get that 5000 back at credit, his out-of-pocket closing costs would have been 5000 instead of the 10000 Right. Um, so, yeah, that, it, I mean, it, I think for both of us, just was such a great feeling to, to finally pull that together. And uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about how, What's, what's the financial outlook and projection from you now? I mean, so uh, how much, what are you expecting your your monthly payment to be once you get the property stabilized and get the tenants involved? Yeah, so we're doing a deep, uh, deal deep dive, I guess. Uh, so uh, just, uh, you know, at the beginning, the deal, well, the purchase price is 705 and uh, paying 3.5% out of pocket. And so that with a 2.5% interest rate, the, uh, the your monthly mortgage payment came out to be about 20, uh, 2,700 per month. And the uh, your tax, your tax plus uh, insurance is about 1,300. So your PITI came out to be a bit over 4,000. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the other unit that I've never been out, the, the I'm sorry, just for the, the people, does that include PMI or not? Uh, that, that, oh, that's a great question. Uh, I, rem I remember that. It, I want to say we took that into account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, because PMI is a, is a big part of it. Yes, it, it is involved. Uh, PMI is part of the product. And, and for those that don't, cut us some slack. I mean, we don't have the spreadsheet in front of us. We're, we're just, these numbers are in our head right now, so leave us alone. Anyways, continue. Yeah, and uh, so for the other unit that I'm doing out, I think the market rent is around, let's say, uh, 2000 or best to be 2200 I think, around that range. And uh, for the unit that I live in, uh, if I were to, it's a three-bedroom, uh, in this unit, if I were to rent out the other two, if for I don't know, like uh, seven hundred, six or seven hundred, uh, that would come out to be fourteen hundred. So uh, if I were to rent out, you know, both of these uh, rooms, that would come out to be about uh, I would say like three, uh, three, three twenty, uh, yeah, uh, thirty-two or thirty-three hundred. So out of pocket. Uh, about a thousand uh, each month. Right, and that's why you're living here. Correct. And you're in a bit of a different situation, and I, I perhaps this is indicative of 
another advantage of, of having your own property is sort of the flexibility involved where if you wanted to max this bad boy out, you could rent out and, and the, the unit that Al was living in is three bedrooms and he could rent out the other two units to other tenants and increase the monthly rent that he's getting. But from my understanding, your mom is going to be moving in with you and you're going to be living with her, is that right? Uh, correct. At least for the, for the next few months. Yeah. Um, which I think the number still works. Like, mm -hmm. like I would, the, like when I think about the market rent for two people in Boston and, uh, I feel like, yeah, if I were to live in a part like a two B two B one B apartment with another person, that's the yeah, the, the number would be actually the same. Right. Yeah, and, and what's your what's your projection for okay, so a year or two years from now, you move out, you're ready to go. What's your and ideally at that point if all goes well, maybe not within the next two years or so. But let's say when when it's all said and done. Your PMI is paid off, uh, which for those that don't know, you know, really quickly, it's uh, up until you have 20% equity in the property, you have to pay the PMI payment. I think in this case, it's about 600 a month. Yeah. And once he gets to that 20% equity, he no longer has to pay PMI, uh, which is ultimately going to improve his bottom line and give him uh, even more cash flow. What's, what's your sort of long-term projection for what, what this is going to end up cash flowing? Once you move out, get it tenanted, and PMI is taken out of the equation. Okay, so, um, you know, I, I, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done this, but to me, I don't really want to think of it too long-term of, like, you know, how that would look like. Uh, but I knew for a fact that, you know, when, again, especially if I remove, like you said, the 600 PMI, and I start to, uh, so that would reduce my uh, monthly mortgage payment. Well, monthly payment, the PITI to, let's say, 350. And if I were to rent out both of these places out, it's definitely over that already. Because the smaller unit is uh, 2,000. And this one, worst case, if we rent it out for 2,000, it's still above uh, what I pay each month. And so I feel like as long as I have that understanding, like, because the number is always going to be changing, but if I have that worst scenario uh, taken care of, I know that this is all going to be positive size down the road. Right. Um, that's kind of my take on this. Yeah. yeah, no, I think, you know, from my perspective, relatively, especially once you get past that PMI, uh, that monthly payment is going to stay more or less the same that, you know, you as the landlord have to make. But as the market tends to improve, you know, five to 10 years down the line, the rent payments are going to increase. So you're probably going to find yourself in a position where it's cash flowing a good thousand to maybe even twenty five hundred a month at, at some point. That might be a bit a bit bullish. I'm not sure, but um, I mean it, it's definitely going to be a, a favorable situation to be in. Yeah. Again, like yeah, I try to think about the worst, and the worst still positive. So I feel like there's no um, there's not a ton of risk that I'm taking here uh, with this deal. Right. Yeah, no, that's, I think that is a very sort of insightful perspective to have. And all right, so we talked about the past. We talked about how we got here, where we are now. Let's talk about your sort of outlook next couple of years for real estate. Obviously, we don't know what the future entails, but if all goes well, are you planning to live here for a few years and do it all over again? Or what do you have your sights on? 
Um, I well, I think in my perspective, I really want to um, accelerate this path. Uh, like live here a few years is it's still good, but uh, and like I really wish that you know I think next year I, I want to house hack another. Like if if there's an opportunity to do this, why not? Uh, and I don't really mind about kind of my living situation. Like in Boston, I when I first started working, uh, like I, I rent a room that's five fifty per month, and yeah, you, you can you can imagine the condition of that. But um, really, I think uh, frugality and also reach financial freedom uh, earlier uh, is really my goal. So uh, I want to be able to house hack. Uh, I think again next year, and and but when I think about it, right, like five years down the road, let's say that. The worst thing that I do is only do a house hack for five years. Uh, that would get me four or five properties. Um, that's still better off than it's still so much better off than where I'm now. Uh, but if I but I want to have a goal that's kind of a bit more aggressive, right? Like, what else can I do aside from this? Uh, and I think listening to uh, not to create competition here, but bigger pockets, really <laughs> pockets. Uh, you know, listening to so many different other stories, you know, people house hacking like 18 properties, 18 months. I like, I know that's possible. So I also want to explore that down the road, uh, be a bit more aggressive uh, in uh, the number of properties that I can uh, keep under my belt. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a very good outlook to have. It's both, I think, aggressive, uh, but flexible too. You know, I think for both of us, we're, we're still very much in that learning phase where, I mean, you know, I, I think it's a blessing to both of us that we're so young and we have so much time to, to see how everything unravels and uh, to pursue all these, these different opportunities as, as time goes on. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think one good point you mentioned is like kind of our age, it's actually a really big advantage. Like if I, uh, like actually just two days ago, I was speaking with a friend, uh, I was helping her move as I was moving about my own. Uh, she's uh, just a few years older, but she's still uh, kind of in the mentality of you know getting a good. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is bad. It's just you know people have, people make different choices, but for her, it's uh, like getting a good job, like go to school and then keep getting good jobs. Uh, and it's in a way I wanted to tell her that maybe there's a different path, but it's just. Like I don't know how to how to begin that conversation because I I was exactly in her shoes just one or two years ago and uh, I feel like this is only something that if it clicks for you it'll, it'll just work but other people can really shed a ton of light just to let you realize that dude oh man that's such a good point and I guess this even extends outside of real estate specifically and just more like the general mentality when like approaching life and, and the future that we envision for people like us we can jam all day and talk about these different things and like it just clicks like it makes sense to us why wouldn't we do that and it's so frustrating because or at least I, I used to get super frustrated by it when people that i i love and care for so deeply didn't understand that perspective because to me it's so clear and dude, it was so tough for me, man, because, you know, I, a few of the, 
the strong relationships that I have with people. I'll, I'll talk about these things and it, it doesn't, it doesn't click for them. And it almost it becomes like a point of contention because I care about them so much. I'm like, dude, you need to, you need to be thinking about these things. Like, come on, like, this is the way. And, and they just don't see it. So I know for me, you know, the, I've sort of started to take that approach that, you know, look for, for some people, it's going to click for other people. It's not going to click. And, you know, of course you should do what you can, but at some point you just need to, you know, take your foot off the gas and, and you know, let them figure it out and, and just love them regardless. Yeah, exactly. Slow put. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, last but not least, I'd love to know uh, if you could recommend one book to the audience. Oh, what, uh, what would it be? <laughs> it could be real estate. It could not be real estate. But, uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Um, so, I think... Now that we, you know, we're just talking about perspectives, uh, I think a good uh, book to recommend just to lighten up that perspective uh, is definitely um, uh, is the Cash Flow by uh, Robert Kiyosaki. Um, like when you, the, the way that I was reading that book was just okay. Like if I were in a character playing Monopoly, here's the <laughs> oh, it's called the Cash Flow Quadrant. Yeah. Here's the quadrant that I'm in. And uh, it's just, yeah, that book just really clicked to me and uh, it, things just make sense. It might be too conceptual, but like, it's just something that would really help you to like lighten up that understanding. Right. Yeah, no, and that's, I, I, that's a wonderful book. I mean, Robert Kiyosaki, I think that's what he does a really good job of too. You know, I don't think, uh, I guess for a lot of these people, right, like, they're not going to give us all the answers to life, but they give us very good groundwork where the people that uh, are interested in it and the people that it does click for, it, it just like lights, uh, ideally that sort of lifelong fire within us to, to get more involved and, and pursue these different avenues. And with that being said, Al, uh, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, and I, I think what I'm, I'm here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was, it was fun. It was a good time. Uh, I think something that I love about the opportunities that real estate has provided are sort of situations like this where, um, I mean, even look at this. I mean, uh, this had initially started with uh, Al playing hard to get, per se, uh, you know, a lot of messages, not knowing each other at all, not knowing anything about each other. And now, you know, we, we each have a friend, someone uh, that's in each other's corner, and we're recording a podcast talking about the experience in his house. And, and I don't know if there's anything quite more beautiful than that. So that being said, Alfred, thanks for being on the show. And uh, let's see, what's uh, what's the way that people can keep up with you? If people want to know, you have like any, uh, maybe on LinkedIn, they can find you on Instagram. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, you can find me. I, I'm not a big, I don't have a big presence on social media, uh, Austin could. Uh, <laughs> well, wait till this podcast happens. You know, I, this, might, this might be the first, uh, All right. this might be the start uh, of fame right here. Yeah, feel free to connect me. Uh, LinkedIn and uh, Instagram, and that's where I'm at. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening. If you're still listening, this is by far the longest podcast we've done. 55 minutes, nearly approaching the hour mark. That was the fastest 55 minutes of my life. I'll tell yeah. you guys that. And uh, you guys enjoy the rest of your Saturday. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye bye now. Bye.